thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. If you ask the astronomer royal, Martin Rees, to discuss cosmology with a flat earther, he would probably decline. Politely, of course. When it comes to science, what is unreasonable or just plain wrong is more often than not obvious, and discussion becomes redundant. Sander van der Linden explores the problem in his reflection on the challenges facing groups isolated from society and also entrenched in their unscientific views and beliefs. He spoke on the Naked Scientist show, The Power of Vaccines. When you talk about anti-vax communities, so communities that are isolated from the rest of society, that are very difficult to penetrate with factual information or scientific information, communities who have become so entrenched where they're only receiving information from opinion leaders or religious leaders or even, you know, cult leaders, even when you get the facts in, they're not going to do much because people look around and, and, you know, they follow norms and they see what the norm is and the norm is not to vaccinate. But when it comes to matters of religion and society, it's sometimes much more difficult to draw the line to figure out when it's time to stop trying to persuade. In fact, is there ever a time to stop talking? At the Wolf Institute, we like to believe there's always room for discussion and mediation. The premise of this edition of Naked Reflections, Time to Stop Talking, is almost counterintuitive, but it's a premise worth considering. And with me to consider it are two Naked Reflections veterans, Dr. Alfred Moore, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of York. The last time Alfred was on, we discussed the QAnon conspiracy, an example perhaps of a belief that seems to be immune to rational argument. And welcome back to Dr. Chris Wadibia, who until last year was a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute but went over to the other place to take a research fellowship at Pembroke College, Oxford. Chris is researching political Pentecostalism and racism. In our clip, Sander van der Linden sounds like a scientist almost ready to give up on persuasion. Is there sometimes a case for stopping talking, Alfred? It seems like Sander van der Linden is thinking about speech that's aiming to persuade. 
speech that's aiming to get people to do what you want them to do or to believe what you want them to believe. And that sometimes this seems pointless. Sometimes it seems like people's mind is made up. But to your question, like, do we want to stop talking? I feel like that's a broader question because persuasion is not the only reason to talk. You know, and there are at least two other important reasons. And one of them is understanding, simply getting a sense of where people are coming from, their concerns and their hopes, their fears. And that's a sort of thing that even if you have given up on the hope of persuading them, bringing them around to your view, making them do what you want them to do, you can still aim for understanding them and for aiming at some level of mutual understanding, right? even without persuasion. The other reason, I think, is, is, is of respect. And by essentially by treating them as fellow citizens who are owed reasons for things that we're doing together. Right? And behind this is the thought that we're never going to agree on many important issues. We're not going to come to a consensus. And in some cases, even on the most solid seeming matters of fact. But we do have to act and we do have to make decisions. Decisions don't have to be unanimous to be legitimate, but part of what does make decisions legitimate is that they come from a process of public deliberation and that we're prepared to explain and justify them to each other. So I think for reasons of understanding and respect, we might still have good reasons to keep talking even when, we, even when we're not aiming or expecting to persuade the other side. So it sounds like, Chris, that uh, Alfred's arguing that there is no justification for stopping to talk. Um, where would you draw the line? Or I, I see Alfred raising his eyebrow at me. That's what I heard you say. I said there are reasons to keep talking, but there can be reasons to stop. I think the sorts of reasons where we should stop or where we really need to consider stopping is when we think the engagement is in bad faith. Or if we think that by engaging, we are ourselves being manipulated. This is where the trickiness comes in, I think, because that means that you have to make some sort of judgment about people's intentions. He's giving a nuance there, Chris. Something that I would like to add to that, particularly from a, a sort of Christian theological or religious perspective, is that there can be a difference between uh, ceasing speech or stopping talking altogether outright and also being more mindful of what one is saying. Um, in terms of having a more measured verbal approach and using less words. And so I, I, as I was preparing for this, this podcast episode, I did a, a review of uh, scriptures throughout the, the Bible that uh, engage with this subject of stopping, to, stopping talking and, and bits of that nature. And a couple that I came across are in Proverbs. And Proverbs 18 verse 2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And I find it very interesting that from a, a Christian theological perspective, we have this concept of the fool. And the fool is one that always talks and does not understand, does not listen. Um, and then moving on also, Proverbs ten nineteen it says. But hey, Chris, let me just come in there because doesn't the fool sometimes speak truth to power? In terms of speaking truth to power, does the fool do that? A question that I would repeat to that question is, does the fool know that he is the fool? Uh, and does the fool think that the way in which they're speaking truth to power is foolish? And so I would argue that the context here is key. But I think that 
going back to the, the foundational question here, is it ever appropriate to just stop talking altogether? As humans, we're social creatures, and speech, talking, is one of the basic elements of how we communicate. Um, alongside Alfred's points about uh, persuasion and um, showing uh, different ways of, of kind of winning someone over to, to your perspective, I think also as humans, we talk just to basically communicate. It's not necessarily always something that there's not always necessarily an end goal, a political goal in mind as much as it is. It's also a way to um, express uh, fraternity, express community, express uh, our sociality. So we've got some very deep reasons for remaining in conversation, understanding, respect, uh, not just persuasion. Um, but still, I want to tease out when it's appropriate not to engage in conversation. Clearly, uh, you said, Alfred, if, there's a, if you feel the conversation's in bad faith, in my experience, I pretty much talk to anybody, uh, even those in bad faith, until I feel threatened. That's where I personally draw the line. Um, but are there examples where it has some practical effect in some situations? I think there are. I mean, I think we have to be mindful of the fact that what our sort of topic of discussion here is not so much questions of, say, everyday talk or the everyday sort of sociability that we have, but the kind of talk that we do in public, that when we, for example, when we make decisions about who to invite onto our radio show, we're making decisions about how to frame a discussion, we're making decisions about which viewpoints are going to be presented as the implicitly as the legitimate scope of the debate on an issue, which viewpoints are going to disappear altogether because they don't get invited. So there are these dimensions of kind of power and strategy in all of our public deliberation, right? And so I, I think that where we do have good grounds for at least being very careful about um, who we talk to and how are when we're doing things like responding to perhaps a bad faith accusation, right? It, I was coming across a lot of cases like this around climate science, where, you know, scientists were being asked to respond to um, demands, demands for information or accusations that seemed wholly sort of inappropriate to be to make and to be in bad faith, and where it seemed like talking about these would be giving them a kind of credence. If you publicly respond by saying, I am not, <laughs> I am not a witch, as the, uh, as the Republican uh, congresswoman a few years ago that's maybe not the best example but if you're publicly responding to a claim no I'm not being paid by uh, being paid by so and so to to be a climate scientist you're immediately elevating a discourse right so and I think that's what people are mindful about when they think okay we're we're entering a strategic domain here when we're talking to others in public when we're speaking in our public roles speaking as journalists or as officials or as representatives. And for that reason, I think it does make sense to sometimes make those, or at least to make those judgments, to think about the strategic effects of your engagement in speech with others in some context. Yes, Alfred, I think that's a very important point, uh, particularly when it comes to the strategic nature of one's willingness to engage with various stakeholders. Uh, however, I wonder if as we live in the social media age and with with the internet and all of these different um, spaces, it seems to me that if you fail to engage with a party, 
from one's perspective, that might be denying them recognition. But I think nowadays what we're seeing is that the other stakeholders, they can in many ways find their own space to articulate their view, whether or not they engage with you or not. And so what what comes to mind here is when um, former President Donald Trump was uh, banned from Twitter, then he went and established his own social media platform. And so I think one of the values of engaging with a stakeholder or a different party that has a, a comprehensively uh, opposing view to your own is that at least you have the opportunity to critique them and to deconstruct their ideas in a public way that is in, in full view of perhaps a, a, a consumer base that is composed of different Ideolo constituents, ideologically speaking. Whereas I fear that if you deny those individuals the opportunity to engage with you at all, then it's just going to contribute to this siloing, this um, radical tribalization of thought, which can lead to increased levels of polarization socially and politically, as we're seeing in the United States and across the world. But this is what Naked Reflections is all about, isn't it? Because you're caught there, Chris, between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, there's a recognition that you give credence to an opinion that may be offensive, may be racist. Um, and Alfred's point is, well, if I engage with him or her, I'm accepting the grounds upon you know, which they're making this argument. On the other hand, as you've just said, rightly, um, but if I don't, <laughs> then that person has the opportunity to circulate uh, their views all around the world through the so different social media platforms. It, it's a very, very tricky one, isn't it? I suppose part of the decision making we will have is uh, who we represent. So if you're speaking on behalf of uh, Pembroke College, Oxford or University of York, in that capacity, you, you certainly are adding credence to that conversation. On the other hand, what do you do? Do you start cancelling these? You know, we go into the cancel culture question as well. If we decide we're not going to engage with that person, we seem to give oxygen, if you like, uh, to that position. I don't have an answer, um, but I'm just putting it out there for listeners. I don't quite know how we unpack that, with the, that, that kind of Gordian knot. Any, any suggestions? I was going to leave that to you, Chris. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that is a, that's a tough one, because I think it's a genuine dilemma, because I think there's no world in which we don't make choices and selections in who we engage and for how long and on what topics, simply because there's only that much oxygen in the world and we're all finite beings. You know, We're going to make choices about. And so the question is not whether there are going to be some exclusions, but on what grounds and where those exclusions might potentially fall. I'm generally somewhat of a, you know, John Stuart Mill variety liberal on these kinds of questions, right? And I share a lot of the intuitions I think Chris has. The point I wanted to raise about recognizing the strategic dimensions of speech is just to say there's a need to be mindful of the effects of, of an engagement. It may be that for, for just the reasons that Chris suggests, we may choose, you know, we may choose to engage others for the reason that we don't want to lose them perhaps to to more exclusive silos or or communities in which they're only going to be talking to each other and not find themselves at all uh, represented in the public sphere that could be a, you know that could be a good reason for inclusion 
I don't have any really, really great answers for this, but I mean, I think they're genuine dilemmas. One more thought, this is just thinking aloud. When should we stop talking? We have to think about who's the we. I think it makes sense to me that there are different sorts of responsibilities that go with different sorts of roles. And there might be responsibilities you know, as a citizen, as someone who's consuming information. But there are different responsibilities if you are a journalist, for example. And there are different responsibilities if you are a political representative. Your duty as a political representative is to engage your partisan community, right? And that may involve you hewing much closer to their prejudices, right? This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. Time to stop talking is our subject this week. I don't mean it literally, because my guests, Alfred Moore and Chris Wadibia, are still here. Let's listen to a clip from the Naked Scientist show, Conversations About Climate Change, in which George Marshall gives some hints about how to combat irrational denial. Really, the way we bypass this is we make it social. Climate change is something that people like us believe in, whoever we are. This is a faith issue. This is a Muslim issue. This is a conservative issue. This is a business issue. This is a, an artist's issue. And then it becomes persuasive because we start hearing from it from people like ourselves. And if there's one thing which galvanizes us into action, it's the fact that we think that something is part and parcel of the identity of the group around us. Chris, you've been open on Naked Reflections shows before about what seems to be the intractable racial conflict between the police and people of colour in the United States. Does it ever feel like time to stop talking from where you sit? My thoughts are a bit divided on this issue. On the one hand, I would say that, no, we should always be willing to engage in conversation and in dialogue and in discourse, because when we stop talking, I think that we lose our most fundamental capacity to constructively progress as humans. Um, on the other hand, I would also suggest that there is a certain power in silence. There is a certain power in silent protest, and there's a certain significance of withholding one's words and just letting one's actions speak. From a kind of personal perspective, you know, I rarely get upset, but whenever I do, I just get silent. But what I find is, is that that silence is actually an extraordinarily effective mechanism <laughs> in the sense of my friends often tell me, we wish that you would be more vocal. And so if I was to project this sort of uh, framework onto society more so at large, I would also relate this to historical instances whenever you had the, um, the sit-ins of the civil rights era and the um, various forms of protest in which speech was not used, but actions certainly were. And so from my perspective, I think that particularly from a Christian theological worldview, and especially with regards to the moral dimensions of speech, I think that one should always be willing to engage in conversation dialogue and discourse. But I would certainly also acknowledge that there have been times in, in human history where silence has bowed so that action can be more um, at the focal point, And it's been quite effective. And of course, for the Quakers, silence uh, sits at the heart of worship. So I think you're right, Chris, that there's something there in the power of silence. And Alfred, maybe that's the positive side of not engaging uh, in conversation. It's not denying the existence of the other. It's just allowing that space for people to think. And actually, well, there's almost a forced reflection, isn't there? Well, it's interesting. I was going sort of in the other direction when I was thinking of Chris's example, because I take the point about silence. 
But I was taking it more of a point of, of the power of silence, more as an expression of power. To put it another way, I feel like the premise of this show, in a way, is to sort of say, we have been deliberating over some issue for some period of time, and there comes a point where, for various reasons, it seems fruitless to continue, right? And it seems like the kind of example that, that you've introduced here and that Chris is talking about is the other way around, right? Where there hasn't been deliberation, affected groups have been excluded and have been without an effective voice in a public process. And indeed, it's through protest, which includes a whole repertoire, including silence, including anger, right? Including sort of protest. Um, it's through this process that issues get onto an agenda and our framings are challenged in a way that makes it possible to speak about them in a way they couldn't be spoken about before. I wonder, Chris, in your, your research, um, think about the Pentecostal churches, because when I've attended a Pentecostal service, it's not been silent. I, I don't remember a moment's silence. Would your research shed any light on this question of the moment to stop talking? I think one of the central theological um, dimensions of Pentecostalism is, uh, or relates to the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and that naturally implicates this, um, or rather points to the significance of prayer both silent prayer and also verbal prayer. But if we kind of engage with the subject of silent prayer for a, little, a, few, a few seconds here, I think one of the interesting bits about silent prayer from the Pentecostal perspective is that it is an appealing to divine counsel, divine wisdom, praying for guidance, and also engaging the influence of the Holy Spirit when it comes to this uh, inviting of the divine into one's life in order to lead to some sort of uh, or trigger some desired outcome. And so I think that within the Pentecostal space, silence can be extremely uh, powerful, especially because, Ed, as you pointed out, uh, it's usually a minority sort of activity because uh, Pentecostal churches are quite known for uh, beautiful and uh, passionate worship and a, a religious environment where silence is usually not something that is uh, particularly uh, promoted. In a space where being boisterous and loud is the norm, one might suggest that reserving a space for silent prayer becomes all the more notable because it stands out. And moving it into your area, uh, Alfred, which is more about the sort of conspiracy theories and, and its impact, if you like, in the political arena, I'm wondering whether you know, taking it in the context of Russia-Ukraine right now, whether we need to stop trying to persuade President Putin that West does not want to invade Russia because there's a sense of that bad faith in whatever is said about it. I'd be hesitant to be talking really about Russia and Ukraine in that context. I mean, I think the broader point I was making earlier about the, the importance of recognising the strategic dimensions of of all of our interactions, right? thinking not, not just in terms of our everyday talk, but thinking about political speech, thinking about what we're doing when we speak as representatives and what we do as journalists and who we give voice to. And I think in view of that strategic dimension, I think that's where I think some of these debates about what sorts of things you should have on the table or what sorts of views you should include on an issue like the war in Ukraine are tremendously important precisely because if you simply followed a principle of say, mindless inclusion or of just automatic engagement with, you know, all possible 
arguments arguments that are raised around this, you'll find yourself being manipulated, and you'll find yourself, you know, you're you're inevitably going to be engaged in strategic action here, and so you're going to have to take responsibility for that. Alfred, we've talked about the the responsibility, if you like, of talking. When it comes to social policy at various levels, I sometimes think that consultation and endless soundings is a oh, a way of procrastinating, making difficult decisions. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. I mean, again, we can often find laudable-looking processes that are inclusive of affected communities that give voice to people, enable people to articulate their concerns around, say, healthcare policy or um, resource distribution, and that in the room look like respectful, inclusive, deliberative kind of processes of the sort of thing that we should really appreciate. But their strategic function in a bigger policy environment could be one of distraction or deflection or stalling or simply placation to make a community feel included when in fact a decision has already been made. I mean, this was the case in the GM nation, if you remember this from more than a decade ago, the genetic modification public consultation that was undertaken by the British government, a kind of roadshow of public deliberations, which were pretty hollow, precisely because, as was already known, there'd been government commitments to back the technology, regardless of the outcome of the deliberations. And so this is, I think, a major problem whenever ideals about inclusive public deliberation meet the kind of strategic imperatives of of government. And there is a risk. There is a risk that they are cheapened or that they're used to placate publics or to mask decisions that are made elsewhere. And that's I mean that's a and that's a real risk because then you're you're really disrespecting people if you engage in a process you know in which decisions have already been made elsewhere. And it really cheapens the the very idea of trying to be more inclusive. Yeah, I get that. On the other hand, sometimes I think that just because my view is not taken seriously or not persuasive of the, the majority, they're, they're not listening to me, Chris. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. But I would argue that, particularly if we engage with this concept of leadership, I would largely lean toward defining leadership as at least one element of leadership as implementing a vision with an understanding that the support and backing of everyone is impossible. Um, and so I think there comes a point at which, particularly from a social policy perspective, if we're especially going to prioritize the perspective and the, the view of the beneficiaries themselves, action is something that the beneficiaries will celebrate. You know, if you're, when I'm thinking of my own research on, you know, Pentecostal churches in Nigeria and how they've engaged with development, a number of Pentecostal churches invest considerable sums of capital into healthcare and educational institutions, uh, they don't necessarily canvas opinion for the widest range of interested stakeholders or parties, but that would take quite a lot of time. And in a context where poverty and underdevelopment are are rife, that would also detract from delivering desperately needed social development services to beneficiaries who otherwise would uh, go without that support. And so I think just getting back at this subject of leadership, there's a certain threshold that's needed in the sense of you want to get to the point to where you've canvassed opinion widely, but you are also comfortable with the fact that no matter what you do, you're going to 
um, make someone upset. You know, you can't please everyone. I'm glad we all agree that it's good to talk, but there comes a time when we have to stop talking and we've reached that point and the end of the podcast. Thanks to my guests, Alfred Moore and Chris Wadibia, and thanks to you, dear listeners, for listening. By the way, you can check out Alfred talking about QAnon and Chris talking about the perils of driving a car as a black man in the United States in our back catalogue. I'll be back next week with more thoughts and more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.